Morning, or good afternoon, whatever. Hello. I'm so used to being up here in the morning. So we, there's notes on the chairs coming in. If you didn't get any, take one of each. If you didn't take one of each, go back and get one of each. And we're going to pray and get started. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. It's another day to walk with you. And we trust to honor you in our thoughts, in our actions, in our motives. And Lord, we are so thrilled for Jesus, um, both as our Lord to follow and as our Savior to forgive when we didn't do right today. So thank you for him. We ask for your spirit to guide us tonight and help us understand what we're talking about here with looking at your Bible and how it came together. So guide us, Father. We thank you, and in Christ's name we give you praise. Amen. So last week, last two weeks... We have, I have, just crammed information down your throat. And, and part of it is trying to turn a 15-week class, I teach at the Bible College, three hours a week, into an eight-week class, an hour and a half. And trust me, I've cut a lot out. So tonight is another, it's like um, drinking out a fire hose tonight. And um, it is what it is. Stop me if you say you're totally confusing me. Um, I, I want to remind you of this chart that last week, because Daryl, I looked at my watch, my clock, it was like 8, it was, it was like 7, 7, 40, 40 or something like that. I go, well, I got lots of time. So five minutes later, Daryl goes like this, sitting in the back, and it was 10 after 8. I thought it was five minutes later. It was 30 minutes later. So then I was kind of in a hurry, and I didn't get to really wrap up the first section. So the first section of the piping is the idea of the originals. So I'll ask you by, you know, by way of a quiz, how many of the original manuscripts that Peter and Paul and Isaiah and Moses wrote, the actual document they wrote, how many do we have? Zero. Zero. That's right. What we have is copies of them. But we, what we do have in that first section, I talked about the originals, that we talked about what's called canon. Canon is a word that means the rule, a ruler, what measures things. So the canon of the Old Testament is how many books? 39. The canon of the New Testament is how many? 27, because 3 times 9 of the Old Testament is 27 of the New Testament. That's how you remember it. And we saw the very human process by which God oversaw, as, as Scott had mentioned, his, his providence, providentially oversaw human activities to in the end result, the Bible in Timothy's hands, 2 Timothy 3. In fact, turn to 2 Timothy 3 in your Bibles, please. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. If you remember, the premise of this class is that Paul is not talking about original documents. Paul is talking about the Bible in Timothy's hand. And calling it God breathed. So 2 Timothy 3, remember in, in verse 14? You guys there? Hey, great to see real hard Bibles, you know. There's a few phones. I'm teasing. Actually, if you have a hard Bible, I want you to open it tonight because I want you to look at some footnotes with me. So. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, talking to Timothy, and I firmly believe knowing that whom you learned it from, and that was from his mother and grandmother. 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For all scripture, and he's talking there all scripture is the sacred writings he's known from childhood, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible in Timothy's hand, what he was raised on, and Dave, I forgot to put you on the email list. I apologize. He emailed me and asked me to, his wife did, so I apologize, Dave. Maybe, maybe, maybe by the end of the class I'll remember. So, um, Timothy's Bible, if we remember right, was a translation into what language? Greek from which copies? Hebrew copies of the original. So Paul is calling a translation in Greek, it was called the LXX, the Septuagint, that Timothy read, because Timothy didn't speak Hebrew. He was raised in a Greek-speaking culture, half Jewish, half Gentile. He's reading a Greek translation of Hebrew copies of, of the originals, and Paul is saying, your Bible is God-breathed. So the human process by which Timothy's Bible came about is, is in the history of our Bible. And, and the whole process of 66 books being determined, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, with all the uncertainties about certain books of the Old Testament, five of them in particular, certain uncertainties about seven in the New Testament. In the end, it was all confirmed. The Old Testament 39 by, by the Jews had determined which, which books were inspired by God, the New Testament by the church. And so by the 4th century AD, you have 66 books collected together in a codex, handwritten copies called the Bible. And we believe, even though a very human process, that God providentially oversaw the whole thing. So is that what you heard over the last two weeks? Good, because that's what I intended to teach with a lot more detail. Did you guys get notes back there in the chairs? Dick, did you get notes? Okay. Um, so tonight we're going to look at the process of copies. It's called the transmission of the text. And so we're going to look at the Old Testament just for a few minutes. Then we're going to spend most of our time tonight and the next couple of weeks on how the New Testament manuscripts were copied and, and, and the history of that and which ones they actually use for the Bible in your hand. So I will spend more time on the New Testament than the Old Testament for a very good reason, and that is that... Um, I know more about the New Testament than the Old Testament manuscripts. So, but, but I want to show you something here. And I've got this TV up here, and I hope that um, I can make it work. My cursor disappears on me. Okay, right here. I want, can you guys read that? Okay, this is Romans 8.1. We preached on it Sunday. And you all knew it was a phenomenal sermon, right? I wanted way more enthusiasm than that, but I'll, I'll take what I got. Thank you, Will. Um, so notice what the top verse says from the ESV. Someone read it out loud. Okay, in light of the people online, I guess I have to repeat it, so I apologize. No, that's not your fault. I, I, I like participation, but we have people online. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. End of verse. Look at the other verse from the King James. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 
So they add a lot more to the version, to the translation. Only, it's only in the King James and the New King James. Because the King James uses different manuscripts than every other modern translation. And in those manuscripts that use, it has this passage. But the overwhelming of other manuscripts that do not have it. This is what's called textual criticism. Look at the next one. So this is a case where something has been added. Look at this one. Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. It says there, but we were gentle among you. This is Paul and his compatriots, you know, Titus and Silas. We were gentle among you, like nursing mother taking care of her own children. But the NIV has a different terminology. Instead, we were like young children among you. And it put a period in. Remember, there's no punctuation in Greek manuscripts, none. All punctuation is put in there by our translators. So we were children, like children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So you see, the first one keeps the metaphor together. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother. The NIV puts in there, we were like young children among you like a nursing mother. It, 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 it breaks the metaphor. So this is, this is, we have manuscripts. Some manuscripts say young children. Some manuscripts say gentle. It's the same word with one letter difference. So when scribes were copying it, some scribes copied one word, other manuscripts, some scribes copied other words. And our translators, who were all experts in Greek and in textual criticism, make a decision about which one they're going to follow. The ESV follows the different manuscripts than the NIV. Now, how significant is this for your faith? Absolutely. Whatever metaphor Paul's trying to do, but does it shake your faith that the word changes? In other words, unless your faith is in, in contact, in, 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 faith is intact. The question of which manuscripts we follow is the question, not is Jesus real? Let me do one more for you. So we've had one word, words were added because of a King James follows certain manuscripts. We have one word, a, a, a scribe misspelled a word. We got to figure out which one was the original word, which one was misspelled. Is it gentle or young children? The last one, is a conundrum, actually. It's a moral conundrum. John chapter 7, Jesus is up in, up in Galilee. The Feast of Tabernacles is in Jerusalem. His brothers don't believe in him, so they're giving him a hard time. They're saying, hey, Jesus, big brother, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and show your stuff? And, and this is what he says. Matthew, ESV, I say to you, oh, no, no, this is the wrong one. I, now I introduced it, I got to go to the next one. Okay, actually, I didn't choose that one. Scratch everything I just said. Now we're going to come here to, to Sermon on the Mount, which if you're following Matthew, you read last week. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So that's the ESV. Look at the New King James. So whoever is angry with his brother, that would suggest you can never be angry with your brother, ever, or you're damned. How many of you are damned? Okay, so the New King James, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is fool, 
shall be in danger of counsel. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. At some point, a scribe added the words, without cause. Or took it out. Which one's more likely? If you, if you were copying a manuscript and you saw that this, would you say, hmm, I don't like the idea that it's angry without a cause. I'm taking the word without a cause out. Or if you saw that there was no exception to being angry, well, what Jesus really meant was without a cause and wrote that in. So these are examples of textual criticism. These are examples of manuscripts. One second, Tina. Manuscript differences. We're going to see that we have 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament and only hundreds of the Old Testament. And no two are identical. No two are identical. Some are very close, but we'll get more to that next week. So in your notes, go to page 23. We're going to talk about the Old Testament first. You had a question. So you mean to time of the translations or time of the manuscripts? Well, time of the translations, the ESV and the New King James are translated within a couple decades of each other. Yeah, but the manuscripts are hundreds and hundreds of years apart. So we'll look at that now. So the Old Testament text, the number and reliability of the manuscripts. We actually have very few manuscripts of the Old Testament. And there's a reason for it, historically speaking. And that is that, that you can see the bullet points. The destruction of text during the Babylonian captivity. We talked about persecution last week. How when people came in and persecuted Christians, they would destroy their Bibles. Well, it's no different back here when Babylon comes in. When King Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 and destroys Jerusalem and, and all that, they're naturally going to destroy their sacred texts. So a lot of the ancient manuscripts were burned or destroyed. Then once again, they're copied. Then 500 years later, at the AD 70, when Jerusalem is destroyed, once again, Titus, the king of Rome, or the, or the general from Rome, later this emperor, came in and destroyed all the manuscripts, took all the gold out of the temple. So, so there would be, a, um, naturally, a reduction in manuscripts. Remember, these are handwritten. takes a long time. Then the last one is scribal practices of reverently destroying old or worn-out manuscripts. You see, the, 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 the scribes, as we're going to learn, were incredibly meticulous. And they would have a manuscript, a Hebrew manuscript, and they would often do one letter at a time. And, and there's no breaks. There's no breaks, no punctuation. Periodically, you'll get a periaph indentation, but usually nothing. And so they'll often do one letter at a time. Look here, look here, look here, look here. They'll get 10, 15 letters in. They'll go back and double check, make sure those 10, 15 letters are the same. Very meticulous. Well, under number two, the situation before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was 1947, I think 45, 46, 47, the manuscripts we had of the Old Testament were about 8, 900, or 1,000 A.D. Now think about that. When, when did Moses write the Pentateuch? Does anybody know? About 1450 B.C. When did Daniel write his book? Probably around 400 B.C. 
So you've got a thousand years between Moses, the first writer, and Daniel, one of the last writers. But the copies we had before 1947 went all the way to 8900 AD. So from when it was originally written to the copies we had, known as Codex Leningrad or, or Codex Aleppo, these were the most complete ones. There was other manuscripts that were partial. We have, how many years is that? That's, um, I say in there, 1,400 to 2,500 years. So the objection would be this. You can't trust your Old Testament because there's so many years. Obviously, so many errors have taken place in the copying process. If we had weeks and weeks, you know what we'd do? We would cut the room in half. I'd have you copy a book of the Bible by hand. Then I'd have you guys look at it and try and figure out what the original is. So you'd be the copyist and you'd be the textual critics. And you'd find that anybody who copies it, no matter how meticulous, is going to make an error. And so, so if, if you have 2,400 years between the manuscript we have in 1000 AD and when Moses wrote it, no way we can trust it. Dick? Okay, so first of all, the book of Job is recording a story that is contemporary with the patriarchs. That doesn't mean it was necessarily written then. Do you follow me? So Job is pre-Moses. He's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob time. When Job was written, I'm less certain about. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it doesn't ever refer to the law. So you're right. So I can't answer your question, why isn't it part of the Pentateuch, when in fact it was probably story took place at the same time. Yeah, but I, that's as much as I can say. Um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls solve our problem for us. And under number three, the situation after the discovery. So in 19, do I have a date in there? I know it's 45 or 47. This little young Bedouin shepherd is throwing rocks into a cave up in the hillside. And these are the sandstone caves of Israel in the Dead Sea area, throwing rocks up there, and he hears a, a, a clay jar break. And he figures out how to get up there and finds thousands of manuscripts that are very old. This is 1947. They date back to before 250 B.C., and over 200 of them are of the Old Testament. And there's one, there's two of them actually, but one specifically called the Isaiah Scroll. There was two that had the whole book of Isaiah. And when they took that scroll and compared it to the Isaiah of the 1000 AD manuscript, it was almost identical. Identical. Which gave, which gave proof to the trustworthiness of the scribal practices of Jewish scribes. You see, so they saw the text as so sacred that they, they saw their job as very important. They're handling the word of God, and they're going to copy it with, with incredible accuracy and, um, and double-checking and triple-checking. So it's an amazing truth that... Um, that those Dead Sea Scrolls came to verify you can trust the Word of God or the Old Testament. Talk loud so everyone can hear you. I read an article about after the Hebrew famine in the book 
Right. Well, see, so it's correct. Whoever found them now has copyright um, property. It's worth money. So we're not going to publish them until we know we can make money off them. <laughs> this is capitalism, after all. So you're right. They didn't publish them for some time. But obviously, the end result is people were fearful for nothing. And you know what we have to do, you guys? Don't be fearful when someone comes up to an objection to your faith. Don't be fearful when you see a headline, oh, discovered the gospel of Judas. It contradicts the Bible. Don't that bother you? See, we've been doing this for 2,000 years since the New Testament was written. If they could have disproven it, they would have. And headlines are just that. They're headlines to do what? To get your attention and to shake you up. And, in, and on the internet, it's to get you to click on something. So, so never let that stuff bother you. Never. Because even, even the critics that are against the Bible, when they write peer-review things, they're very calm in what they say in contour, in, against it. Because they know they're going to get called on the carpet by their peers. It's when they put stuff in popular magazines that they get away with a bunch of BS. Which, by the way, stands for bologna sandwich. <laughs> what are you pointing at? Meaning, hurry up. Oh, gotcha, it's up. Daryl said, I'll fix the clock for you, so now I know what time it is. Now I gotta look at it. Okay, so we're, gonna, we're already taking too much time, though. So, the Old Testament text type. So there's three different types of manuscripts that come out of the Old Testament. One of them is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. I'm, I'm flying through this, you can read it on your own. Do you know who the Samaritans were? John chapter four, Jesus talks to the woman at the well. Remember, she says, hey, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship at Mount Gerizim. We see the Samaritans who were half Jewish, half, half um, Assyrian and Babylonian set up their own worship temple to worship Yahweh. And they had their own Bible. It was simply the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all they trusted. The rest of it they didn't trust because the rest of it says Jerusalem's the place you're supposed to worship. And even there in Deuteronomy, and this is in your notes, where God says, I will appoint a place for you to worship when you get into the promised land. Well, the Samaritan Pentateuch puts in there on Mount Gerizim, where the other Hebrew manuscripts don't have that because they were written before God appointed that place. It wasn't until David. So anyways, so that is one of the texts that, manu that the scholars use to say what would the original look like, Samaritan Pentateuch. The second one is the Septuagint, which we've talked about, is 250 BC. Multiple Jewish believers have lost the ability to speak Hebrew. They live outside of Palestine. These particular ones lived in Alexandria. Alexandria had one of the largest Jewish populations in the world outside of Jerusalem. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek for them. And we have more of those manuscripts in Greek than we have in Hebrew. There's an, a website there if you want to go get the article that's very good. The last one is a Masoretic text. The Masoretic text, the Masorete, is a Hebrew word for scribe. And these are people from about 500... That's my phone, let me turn it off. 500 AD, they took these manuscripts and they copied them. And th these were the people that were unbelievably meticulous. But one of the things they did at that time was they, they put vowel pointings in the Hebrew text. So look at the Hebrew below in your notes. See, Hebrew only has consonants. Try and talk with just consonants. You can't. You need a vowel to talk. But Hebrew only writes consonants. 
But there's an agreed upon understanding of pronunciation. Go, if you could, today, find the Jerusalem Post in Hebrew, not English. There's no consonants. The Hebrew is written in consonants. There's no vowels. It's consonant only. But everyone has an agreed upon understanding of pronunciation. Well, about 500 AD, 5600 AD, Hebrew is no longer spoken except by the religious scribes. It's kind of like, how many of you are raised Catholic? How, how many were raised Catholic when they did mass in Latin? Okay, so, so Latin was the official language of the Catholic Church. And the only people that spoke Latin for hundreds of years are Catholic scholars, priests and scholars, because it's, it's functionally a dead language. Well, Hebrew was the same way. And pronunci proper pronunciation was being lost. So these scribes started putting little vowel points. All the little dots and dashes you see there, are vowels. The larger letters are consonants. And this is Genesis 1 1. Barashit, bara, Elohim, ach, hashemim, ach, haeretz. Thank you. Literally, in the beginning created Elohim, God, the heavens and the earth. And um, the. Um, so I only tell you this to, to quickly tell you about the name Yahweh. How many of you grew up with the name Jehovah? Is there just one? So you, now you guys didn't grow up in a church where God was called Jehovah? Really? Wow, interesting. So we finally have solved the problem. If you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they firmly believe they restored the name of God. That God's name is Jehovah, not Lord. And if you come to this church, you know when I see the all word cap, all capital Lord, it's in behind it is Yahweh, the four consonants that you see there in your notes, called the tetragrammaton, four letters. And the pronunciation Jehovah is a misunderstanding. Because when Jews would read the text, they wouldn't say God's name, Yahweh. You see, after the Babylonian captivity, they came back into the land. One of the reasons they were sent into the land is because of the third commandment. Mean, sent out of the land was the third commandment. You took the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. The Hebrew is very clear. We read, you took the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. With the Hebrews, you took the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. So you know one way never to take the name of Yahweh in vain again? Don't say it. So whenever... The Hebrew manuscripts had the name Yahweh, those four letters there at, at the bottom of the page. These scribes would put the vowels for Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. Yahweh has two consonants. Adonai has three consonants. So it wasn't until a German scholar in the 1500s was looking at the Hebrew manuscripts and didn't understand that the vowel pointings for Yahweh were actually from Adonai to remind the reader, never say Yahweh, but say Adonai. And he came up with Yahovah. So it took the consonants, Yahovah, or in German, Yah became J, Jehovah, but took the vowels for Adonai and made a brand new word no one used before. So when we talk about Jehovah Jireh and all these words for God, for Jehovah, it is a, a misunderstanding of how you pronounce God's name. About 30, 40 years ago, they, they, they really popularized saying Yahweh, which is a two consonant, probably the more proper pronunciation. But in the end, we don't know what the original vowel pointings were. They were never written down. 
So Yahweh is the best guess we have. All right. Any questions on that? That's the Old Testament. Why can you trust your Old Testament manuscripts today? That's right. So you're sitting behind someone else. I can't even see you back there. Meticulously copied by Jewish scribes, proven by the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls affirm manuscripts that were 1,200 years older. So we could trust the scribal processes. Again, God is in the, God is in the details. If he reveals his word, he's going to be in the process of, of preserving his word. I firmly believe that. All right, so, the New Testament, way different. We're going um, gonna to blow you away now, okay? But, you know, this is, like, this is like the fire hose or, or like the, the analogy of um, taking a shower. When you take a shower, not every drop of water hits you. So whatever hits you, hopefully you get it. Whatever you miss, move on, don't worry about it. The situation of the New Testament manuscript, I'm going to read it to you, top of page 25, is quite different from that of the old. There are well over 5,800 Greek manuscripts that date from the early 2nd century until the 17th century. This number increases every year due to the work of Daniel Wallace and his team with the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. If this interests you, and Mark, we talked about this, Mark, go to that website. It's endless information about manuscripts. And here's what Dan Wallace does. Dan Wallace is the Greek teacher at Dallas Seminary. And he's brilliant. He is, um, Teresa, he is more sarcastic than I am. I went to a seminar of his on textual criticism. And he's up there. His, his shirt is like this. His hair is, doesn't comb. His wife's sitting in the back. And he, he introduced his wife to us. And he says, this is my wife of 35 years. Nine of them have been good. And, and, and we're all sitting there. We're just going, what? And she's just back there shaking her head going, that's Professor Wallace. So, but, but he's brilliant. So he, he has done what no Protestant minister has ever done. He has got invested from investors hundreds of thousands of dollars in high-tech digital cameras that are also infrared. And he has gotten agreements with multitudes of Greek Orthodox seminaries to allow him to come into their basements where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts that no one's ever seen before. No one's ever opened them. And usually a Greek Orthodox monastery is not going to let a Protestant pastor in. But he's coming in because what he's doing is this. Manuscripts decay. And these hundreds, these manuscripts that are hundreds and thousands of years old are every year going to more and more decay. And when you handle them, they just crumble. So he's going down there, creating a, especially in basements where the, there's humidity, creating an atmosphere where they can unroll them and take high-definition digital pictures of them. Even ones that have been water-stained where the ink is unreadable, they put infrared light on it, and it pops up. And he's taken digital pictures that will last longer than we last. And he has found manuscripts that no one knew existed. In fact, he found the oldest gospel of Mark, more than any other manuscript, dates back to the early 200s. 
And, and so it's a brilliant work. So the numbers are changing all the time. You're going to see my numbers in here. These notes, I've been teaching this class for 20 years. You're going to see different numbers in here. I tried to standardize them today, but I ran out of time. Now there's over 5,800. So let's talk about some terminology. Yes? Yes, it's, it's, it's 5,800 plus now. And next year it'll be 59. Next year it's 6,000. It keeps going up. So some terms. Textual criticism. When you hear the word criticism, you think negative, don't you? Don't criticize me. And textual criticism is not a negative term. It's a term in, in the area of, of sciences. I'll read the definition. The science and art of determining the original text of the New Testament from the available manuscript evidence. The word criticism should not be taken to mean something negative. It refers to the process of analyzing something, in this case, the, case, the Greek manuscripts. So we're going to talk about textual criticism. In my notes, often I'll just put TC. A variant, the term used to describe differences in the particular words in two or more manuscripts. Often you'll hear me say the word error. And people go, there's errors in the Bible? And I want you to understand that, that the word variant is a technical term. So when we saw, let's go back to Matthew. No, let's go back to John, John 7. We'll look at it next week. Jesus is, tells his brothers, I'm not going up to the festival. I don't go to this festival, you go. And two verses later, what does he do? He disguises himself and goes. He lied to his brothers. He deceived his brothers. But a lot of manuscripts says, I do not go up yet. It's a change of two letters in the Greek word not, from not to not yet. So did Jesus say, I do not go, or I do not go yet? And, and so that this is what textual criticism is, looking at the manuscripts that say this and, and looking at the process of how scribes, how scribes copy things, looking at the process of, 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 of scribes choosing to change things on purpose. Because you know what? If Jesus lied, that's not good. So we're going to change it to, just so no one thinks he lied. By the way, is all deception wrong? So we'll have an ethics class after this one. We'll ask that question. So I love teaching that lesson. So with that, you guys understand textual criticism and what a variant is? We have 5,800 manuscripts plus and no two are alike. In other words, they're filled with variants. Next week, we'll talk about how many variants there are. So the primary witnesses to the Greek New Testament. So we have different types of manuscripts. So look down here. You see papyri, majuscule, minuscule, and lectionaries. Everyone see that? Now, these add up to 5735. When I last did this, that's how many there were. So it was a couple years ago. So papyri, and each one of these are described afterwards. I'm not going to spend a ton of time because you can read them. Actually, actually, what I want you to do is pull out your extra piece of paper. Okay? Your extra piece of paper. This is where we talk about John 7. I knew I had it somewhere. So you had two handouts. Pull out that, and we'll get to that in a minute. I want to show you what a textual critic does. A papyri. The papyri are manuscripts found in Egypt, mostly upper and middle Egypt, where there's very little moisture, and the sand has preserved them. And these are the oldest manuscripts we have. They date all the way back to the very beginning of the second century. All right, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, they all come from Egypt, though. 
So, so we have, I said 116, there's actually 127 as of two years ago. That's grown. I got on the, today the website for the Center of the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and has grown since then. The majuscules, so here's what I'm going to do. Oh, I hate it when it does that because every once in a while my formatting ends. Turn to the back of this page, back of that handout. You'll see a majuscule. Majuscule, or also called an unseal, is all capital letters. There are no breaks in it. No. no, don't worry about it now. You'll see there's no breaks in it. It's hard to read. This is Vaticanus. This is one of the oldest, complete New Testaments we have. Dates back to the 4th century. Vaticanus, because it's in the Vatican. And um, I have a little red circle there, which is a textual variant we'll look at in a minute. This thing's about this thick, about that big. It's like a coffee table Bible. And like I said, there are no, there's no punctuation. You have to know how to read the Greek and find how, where a word starts and where a word ends. And it's, um, it's not easy. So we have about 310 of those. And they represent, they come from all over, all over the Mediterranean world, not just Egypt. Most of them come from Egypt, but not all of them. The next one is what's called the minuscules. On the next page, you see this one. This is cursive lowercase writing. About the 8th or 9th century, writing styles changed to where it went from writing all capitals to writing lowercase. And then you have thousands and thousands. We probably, of the 5,800, probably well over 4,500 are these. So these are the most manuscripts we have that come from about the 8th century to the 16th century. And we'll talk more about why that is true. Then, lastly, is lectionaries. Lectionaries are, okay, I gotta back up. Lectionaries are the Greek churches reading for their church. So if you went to a Greek church back then and today also, there'd be a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. There'd be a reading from the law a reading from Paul, and it's part of their church service. So a lectionary is the Bible divided up weekly what is read in church. Does that make sense? See, see we don't, the, 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 the Protestant church doesn't tend to do this. These churches will read through the whole Bible in a couple years. They read the whole New Testament every year in church. How many think we should start doing that again? Would you get bored if I sat up there and for seven, eight minutes read the scriptures to you? Okay. Honestly, talk to me. However we did it. So why'd they do that back then? Why'd they read the whole Bible to them? Couldn't read? Most of the population is is illiterate. The Roman Empire, probably 10% of the population could read. And a Bible's hand copied. It would cost you a six-month's wage to own one. So you couldn't read it at home. 
If you want to hear the Bible, you've got to go to church and have it read to you. So you, how many of you have more than one Bible at home? Okay, keep your hands up. So how many have over two Bibles at home, five Bibles at home, 10 Bibles at home, 15? Huh? See, I probably have 25 or 30 English translations. I, I collect them. And Teresa says, why do you have all these? You don't read them all. I said, I collect them. <laughs> so, so we don't read the Bible to you in church because you have your own. Here's the $24 question. Do you read it? <laughs> yeah, and that's good. So, so I believe you asked me if I read the Bible every day. And I'm Nathaniel, right? Yeah. And what did I say? I, because of my job, I read my Bible every day as part of, part of teaching. Then he asked me, well, if you weren't a pastor, would you still read it every day? And I said, probably not. Not because I don't love it. You get busy, you get other priorities, you, know, you intend to and you don't. So it takes discipline. It takes discipline. And um, Dick? I have a question. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, not entirely. I would say every New Testament writer is, is, is um, um, literate. They can read and write. But we do know that Peter used Silas to write 1 Peter, because it says in there. We know that Paul used Tertius to write Romans. The question is, is are these, they're called amenuensis, you know, an amenuensis, a secretary. The question is how much liberty did they have to change what's written? And, and, and scholars are varied on it. They believe, they believe some liberty because First Peter and Second Peter are very different. If he's the author of both, a secretary that would have sharpened up Peter's grammar being a fisherman explains why First Peter is better than Second Peter. Yes. Well, I have no, all the disciples who wrote New Testament books were, but Dick, I, I can't, you're catching me on a question I've never, I, I presume it, I presume it, um, I have no reason to believe they're not, and if anybody, and, and this isn't to pick on Romans, but if anyone in that culture, that time period is literate, it's a Jewish person. They took education very serious, yeah. So you see the different kinds of manuscripts. Oh yes, Elder. You guys, this is Elder. You still working over at um, Crosby's? You used to work there. Now you own it. No, okay, sorry, so, sorry. Go ahead, Elder. Yeah. But most people believe the Gospels are written probably 30 years after Jesus lived. And last week, or two weeks ago, Dick asked a question, maybe it was last week, about oral tradition. Most of the stories of the Gospel, of Jesus' life, were passed forward in oral tradition. And, and so the Jews were very good at oral tradition, memorizing stories and passing them on to their children. So 
the stories of Jesus were passed on orally. It wasn't 30 years later that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote them down. John, probably another 20 years after that, 20 to 30 years after that, wrote his gospel. So, and, um, and this causes some people trouble because today we're not an oral culture. We, we don't trust oral stories being passed on. Back then, very reliable. And there's a book called Jesus Remembered by Dunn, a guy named Dunn. It's only 800 pages, where he explains the whole thing. So Dick's going to read it for next week and report back to us. <laughs> so let, let's, we've got to move on. We've got to move. Sorry. So those are the different kinds of manuscripts. Here's what I want to do now. I want to walk through, pull out this piece of paper that has the color coded on it. Because I want, I want to demonstrate to you, and this is, this is where we're going to get bogged into details. Please stay with me. And afterwards say, Tony, waste of time, because I didn't get any of it. Then I won't do it next time we do this. This stuff fascinates me, but um, I'm told I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to this. So, so maybe it doesn't fascinate you. So stay, stay with me, okay? I want you to see there what I talked about in John 7. You see the underlined? Jesus says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Two verses later, he disguises himself and goes. But the NIV says, you go to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. You'll see the Greek down there. You'll see the blue lined word. That's the word ouk. It means not. Everyone with me? Then you see the number two next to it. Okay, now drop down to the box. This box is what's called a textual apparatus. So here's my Greek New Testament. And at the bottom of the page is this thing. That little number two, three, four, all the different textual variants are down at the bottom of the page telling you the manuscripts that support or refute that reading, that variant. Are you with me? So I just cop, cut and pasted one for you. And I'm going to walk you through how it looks, not that you'll remember it, and like I said, tell me later that it, you wasted, I wasted your time, or tell me later I'm a genius. I prefer the second one. I'll pay you later, Elder. <laughs> so, we have different, let me get my notes, so we get on page 25 of your notes. We talked about papyri, majuscules, minuscules, and lectionaries, right? So the papyri, the papyri in what's called here, this is called the sigla. The apparatus is called the sigla, where all the different symbols tell you what manuscripts were used. The papyri are represented by the little letter P with a subscript number. And all the hundred and something papyri is P1, P2, P3, P4. P52 is the oldest manuscript of the Bible. It's a, a little section of the Gospel of John. It's about that big. And if you got $6 million, you still couldn't buy it. That's how much these things are priceless. But so, I got to find it on my computer here and get it up there. I just forgot. Well, pardon me? Talk louder. I, I, will, I will pull it up. I, 
Can everyone see this okay up here? So I want you to look here on your notes. You see that little line right there? So look in your notes. Double line. Can you guys see it okay back there? So you see first up here, you see ook. That means not. Do you see after the double line, it says hupo. That means not yet. You all with me so far? So what these guys are doing, these textual critics, that there are, there are textual critics that put this edition of the Greek New Testament together. They come from the Protestant tradition, the Lutheran tradition, the Greek Orthodox tradition, from the Roman Catholic tradition, and there's one more. So these are scholars from all sorts of different theological traditions, so not one tradition is pushing their agenda. And when they, when they vote, they assign a letter. In this case, this is the second variant on this page. It comes from verse 8. And they put a C on it. If they put an A, that means we fully agree that this variant is the original and the other ones were false. A scribe made a mistake or changed it. A B means most of us think this is original. A C means we're split. A D means we haven't got a clue. So this one is a C. And next week we'll talk about how they decided this, but I just want to show you the different symbols. So then you'll see under Hupo over here, you have the little P66 and P75. Those are the papyri that support that reading. You with me? So I, I made them red. From your notes to there, I made them red. So papyri, when it's in this sigla, when it's in the apparatus, are, and we could, I could, on my website, on my computer, I could click on those and say, oh, P66 is third century. P77 is, is late third century, early fourth century. So my computer will tell me all of that in, in an instant just by hovering my cursor over it. Technology is amazing. The next one, though, are the unseals. Unseals are the all capital ones. It's represented by blue. See that, the blue? So up here, we have the first one is the Greek Hebrew letter Aleph, and that is um, a manuscript called um, Sinaiticus. Count Tischendorf. Count Tischendorf was a German textual critic that traveled the world back in the 1700s looking for manuscripts. And he goes to St. Catherine's Monastery in at Mount Sinai. And they're burning manuscripts to keep warm. And he finds this complete manuscript of the whole Bible in line to be burned. And he knows what he has. And he actually carries with him another manuscript that he showed the, he showed the monks. And he says, hey, why don't, why don't you let me buy that off you? And they said, sorry, it's not for sale. So he said, please don't burn it. Well, guess who owns St. Catherine's? You know, you, know, you know where Mount Sinai is? On the Sinai Peninsula, down below Saudi Arabia. Who owned it? The Tsar of Russia. So he travels all the way to the Tsar and gets permission to come back and get the manuscript. And so he named it Sinaiticus after Mount Sinai. And it is probably a fourth century complete manuscript that is um, it's a beautiful manuscript. And, and it's one of the most important witnesses we have to the whole Bible. It has both the Old Testament and New Testament in Greek.
So that, that supports that reading. Then we have D, which is a fifth century. And then down here, you see way more manuscripts support not yet. Um, so so th then you get to the next one, to the blue ones. These are the minuscules, the lowercase ones that date from the 9th to the 16th, 17th century. You see there's only two up there, and you're going to see there's tons of them here. And then it says the word Byzantine, which means all the rest of them support this too. Then after that, it turns to green, and those are the lectionaries. After that is orange. These are the translations. So you have, this is all in your notes. You have right here, this is Old Latin, Italic, Old Latin, Vulgate, Syriac, Coptic. What else is there? Um, Armenian, Ethiopic, Georgian, Slavic. Those are translations that the Bible was translated to within the first five or six centuries because Christianity is spreading. It's written in Greek, but it gets up into to northeastern Europe where they don't speak Greek. They speak Slavic. It's translated in their language. Or Greek is their second language or third language. So the Bible is translated into all the languages of the Mediterranean within a couple hundred years. After that, then, is the Church Fathers. And you see that well, the Dia Tesseron is a, is a compilation of all four Gospels. And then the Porphyry, Epiphanius, Chrysostom, Cyril, Ambrosiaster, Augustine. And down here is Basil and the NIV. I don't know why they put the NIV in there. But so that's all the evidence because we have, besides, besides papyri, which are the oldest manuscripts found in Egypt, but a little P sign, besides unseals, capital letters, documents from the second to about the eighth century, besides minuscules, lowercase, from about the 8th, 9th century to the 16th, 17th century, and lectionaries. Besides that, you have all the versions and the church fathers. The church fathers, this is all in your notes, the church fathers have quoted the Bible over one million times. And the church fathers being those that followed the apostles up until the great councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, about 450 A.D. From that time of the apostles to 450 A.D., you've got hundreds and hundreds of church fathers writing that if we lost every manuscript to the Bible, lost every one of them, it could be confidently restored by going to the church fathers as they quote it. They quoted it profusely. It's amazing. I, I got the privilege of going back to school back in 2011 to get uh, a master's degree in what's called patristic theology. Patristic theology is the theology of the early church fathers. And because I focus on the Eastern fathers because I read Greek, I, I don't do Latin, so I didn't do the Western fathers. And these guys had, a, had Bibles, they had to use manuscripts, no chapters, no verses. Those didn't come to the Middle Ages and the Reformation period. And they quote the Bible left and right um, from memory. It's unbelievable how well they knew their Bible. They put us to shame how much we, how they know their Bibles. Uh, it, it blew me away when I got to see how much they love Scripture. So, questions so far? Understanding or confusions, disagreements? You need a cup of coffee to wake up? See, the reason I'm showing you this is to show you the human process, how you got your Bible. 
Because the translators of your Bible, tell me your versions in the room. What versions do we have? How many NIVs? All right. What else we got? Louder. ESV. How many ESVs? Okay, I'm an ESV too. New American Standard? All right. Um, How about the um, King James or New King James? Okay. Um, What else is there? Anything else I'm missing? There's lots of, a bunch of them. Those are the major ones. Each one of them had translators. Take the NIV. The NIV used over 200 scholars to translate the NIV. And they would, they would, that's 66 books of the Bible. And they would take teams of five translators. And those translators, say you, let's say you were assigned the Book of Romans. Five translators would do the Book of Romans. And they would do the rough draft translation. They'd do all the textual criticism and decide what, what text was original. Then they would translate it. It would go to a second group of Greek scholars who then would double-check their work. Then it would go to an English committee to make sure it was good English. And in the end, the NIV, actually, the English committee had the authority over the wording of the text, not the Greek scholars. Because what the NIV is most important to them is, is it smooth English? And that's not not a bad thing, per se. I just want you to know that. The ESV is not much different. They just chose a different translation methodology, which we'll talk about in three weeks. So your Bibles are meticulously translated by hundreds and hundreds of Greek and Hebrew scholars who do this process we just looked at. And it is painstakingly slow, but we owe them a debt we can't repay. You wouldn't have a good English translation. How many of you know what the Good News Bible is? Not the Living Good News Bible? How about the Living Bible? Not the New Living Translation, but the Living Bible? The Message? See, all these are, are not translations. They're one person, one person taking an English Bible and rewording it to make it much smoother and simpler English. Um, And so those aren't translations. Those are done by one person. The ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, the New English Translation, one of my ones I will follow, these are done by dozens if not hundreds of scholars that check each other's work. So you can trust your Bibles when you're using one of the major translations that have gone through this process properly. Mm-hmm. Well, see, now, now we're jumping ahead to the... So, so let, let, me, let me give you two reasons to that. His question for those online is why so many English translations? Why so many? Well, we're going to learn there's different translation methodologies from literal to paraphrastic. We'll learn that in a few weeks. But the NIV, how many NIVs? It's owned by Zondervan Corporation. Zondervan Corporation, which is owned by HarperCollins. HarperCollins is a secular publishing company that owns a Christian publishing company called Zondervan, which owns the rights to the NIV. And guess what? They make millions. The ESV is owned by Crossway. The New King James is owned by Thomas Nelson. The New American Standard is owned by a nonprofit group called the Lockman Foundation. 
And you can't quote these in a book unless you have their permission. And often you've got to pay them money to quote them. So in the re- one reason is that God blessed English. That's the good reason. The pessimistic reason is capitalism. There's only one Bible that is copyright-free nobody owns. Does anybody know what it is? King James. Nobody owns it. You don't got to pay for it. Um, So that's the reality. Whether it's sad or good news, I don't know. Capitalism has given us an opportunity to have dozens of translations to compare. So that's a good thing. No, 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 but if I'm going to publish a book, I have to get their permission to quote them. And in certain areas, if I'm going to make a lot of money on it, they want to cut. So it's kind of like the Super Bowl, you guys. So people wanted to watch the Super Bowl here, and they can't. We have to have a license with the NFL to show the Super Bowl in a room with more than, you know, 20 people or so. Because it's a money-making thing. Copyright laws. Yeah. But, you know, I, I've just learned about the Passion Translation, and what I learned was from a more popular article, so I'm not sure how accurate it is, but someone said it was more one person who believed God revealed the translation to them. And that, to me, I put that with the message. The other ones, I say, if you use it, don't use it as your primary Bible, because it's not done by Greek and Hebrew scholars. Um, doesn't mean it's bad. I'm just not going to trust it to be the most accurate. That's, that's my opinion. Yeah, and if, if you have some literature, then let me know. Because the only Aramaic we have is copies of the Greek and Hebrew. So why they would use the Aramaic when they, the Aramaic copies we have are copying the Greek and Hebrew, why don't I just go back to the Greek and Hebrew? But I'd like to see that, if you, if, if you know where you saw that. Yeah. Okay, so, so questions, thoughts so far? I got a couple more things for you. Yes, yes, all the same thing in the Hebrew. Not as extensive because there's way less manuscripts as far as the, the sigla and all the different symbols for the manuscripts. Anything? Is this, it's got to be honest with me, too much information? Talk to me here. Frank's going, hmm, kind of, sort of, maybe. Yeah, appreciate your honesty, Frank. I'm not paying you later. We're going to throw one more wrench in the works and then look at some cool stuff. So can you tell me, you can look at your notes if you want, the different kinds of Greek manuscripts we have? What are the different kinds we have? Greek manuscripts. Papyri was the first one. So majuscules is next, or unseals, capital letters. What's the next one? Minuscules, lowercase. Lectionaries, which is the reading, the Bible you read through the year, kind of a Bible, a year readings of the Bible, all put together in what you read weekly. Pardon me? Church Fathers and all the versions. Those are our witnesses that we have. The Greek manuscripts themselves are 5,800. 
The Latin manuscripts alone are over 10,000. When you add all the other versions in the church fathers, there's probably over 25,000 more manuscripts to the New Testament. So when I say 5,800, that is just Greek, which is what it was written in. But you go to the versions and the fathers, it's um, Dan Wallace, who was a textual critic for the Center of Study of New Testament Manuscripts, he calls it an embarrassment of riches. That, so I want, what I want you to do, just to keep you from falling asleep, I want you to go to the page 29. Oh, on his website, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, it's all public. And you can go online and look at all his manuscripts. Yeah, you, can look at all the, you can look at all the images. Yeah. You can't necessarily copy them or print them. But, um, okay, so page 29. Here's the thing. If the Bible was written by the original authors, the New Testament in the first century, between, let's say, A.D. 50, the two earliest books of the New Testament are James and Galatians. Right? Those are the two earliest books in the New Testament, around 80, 48, 49, 50. The latest ones are John's writings in the 90s. So we have a 40-year period from when James and Paul wrote and by the time John finished writing. Okay, you with me? The manuscripts we have, people will say, well, you can't trust them. The copying process you can't trust. You can't Trust the time frame from when they wrote it to the manuscripts we have. It's not reliable. Why, do you, why are you so naive that you would believe this? So I want to look at a chart here that of different ancient documents that come out of the Greek and Latin world. You on page 29 with me? Do you guys know who Herodotus, who, who Herodotus is? He wrote ancient histories of Israel of, of Greece back, he wrote back in the 5th century BC, 480 to 425. The earliest copy we have of his writings is from 900 AD. So from the time he wrote it to the copy we have is 1,300 years. And we have eight copies. Plato. Plato wrote in 400 BC, the earliest copies we have of his writings is about 895. I rounded up to 900. Again, 1,300 years, we have about 250 manuscripts of his writings. Have you ever heard anybody say, you can't trust Plato? You can't trust Plato, the copying process, so many errors came into that. And there's so many years between the time he wrote it and the copies we have, why would you bother? Why are you so naive to trust Plato? You ever heard that? No. No one ever complains about Plato or Herodotus. You can just go down. Julius Caesar, Gallic War, same thing. Thousand years, only ten manuscripts. Thousand years between the time he wrote it and the copies we have, ten manuscripts. Livy, who was a Latin writer. History of Rome, same thing. Tacitus, Pliny, all these guys are, are the, the last, um, Tacitus and Pliny, um, and uh, Livy, Tacitus, and Pliny are contemporaries of the Apostle Paul, approximately, and Jesus. No one says you can't trust their writings, but look at the evidence. Hundreds, if not over a thousand years between when they wrote it and the copies we have, and we have minimal copies. The New Testament, 
written between 50 and 100 AD. We have over 5,800 copies. We have fragments back in the second century, from 100 to 115, 25 years from the time they were written. We have, within year 200, whole books, manuscripts that are whole books. 250, whole New Testaments being put together. And then, or, or, or most New Testament, and by 325, complete New Testaments. That was the, um, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and about five others that have almost the entire New Testament. So why do they say you can't trust the New Testament when in fact the amount of manuscripts and the proximity of the manuscripts we have to when it was written is, is practically next door compared to Plato or, or Tacitus or Caesar? Why do they say you can't trust the New Testament when they never say you can't trust those other writings? Say again, Daryl. Yeah. They don't command something from your life. None of them make a claim on your life. But as soon as the New Testament makes a claim on your life, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you will go to hell. Well, you can't trust that. It's been copied so many times, it's probably wrong. Well, there's so many years between the time it was copied to the copies we have, you can't trust it. See, as soon as you make a claim on someone's life, then they're going to challenge it. But they don't, they're not consistent in their criticism. Folks, this is powerful. This is a powerful proof that people's arguments don't hold water because they're not consistent in them. And so if they're going to throw the New Testament under the bus, they have to throw every ancient writer under the bus and say, we can trust nothing of ancient history that we have. Nothing. Or you get honest and say, we have a process that is reliable, has brought to us, has brought to us a reliable copy of originals that I can trust I have, but I don't believe it. It's a bunch of BS. That I respect. So I respect that you say, I trust that the manuscripts you have represent what was written, but it's baloney. But when you say you can't even trust it, but you say, I trust, I trust Plato, I trust Herodotus, that's just not honest. This chart, what I left off of here, is we're going to learn next week. We're going to learn that, I'll just kind of drop this and I'll give more details next week. The textual scholars, these textual critics, by the way, many are Christians, some are not. Some are, um, I talked about one last week, Bart Ehrman, who is the head of the religion, religion department at the, the um, um, University of Chapel Hill, South Carolina. He's a textual critic. Got his PhD from, from um, Princeton University under a brilliant textual critic who was a Christian. And He'll even say, we can trust this process back to, all the way back to the second century. Even though he thinks he's an atheist, he doesn't care. It's his profession, it's not his passion. What textual critics believe is about 99.5% of the variance that we have. There's a level, high level of certainty, we've gotten back 99.5% to the original documents of the New Testament. There's about 500 
excuse me, about 5%, one half of 1%, I'm seeing the 0.5 and I'm not saying it right, one half of 1% of the variance, they say we're not certain. Those were the D and C ratings I talked about. It's about 400 words in the whole New Testament out of, I, I, I don't, there's, there's, I forget how many vocabulary words, how many words in the New Testament. I used to know that. So it is a, um, the level of certainty is unbelievable. And so don't let anyone say you can't trust the Bible. Push them on it and say, what do you know? Where'd you learn it? And, and they'll say to you, they'll say, well, the copying process you can't trust. Well, would you explain the copying process to me? What do you know about that? What have you read about that? Don't be mean and rude. But guess what? They've never read anything. Someone told them that. Someone told them, they told them, they told them, you know, and they confidently say it, but they haven't got a clue. So would you do me a favor? Just what I did with, with Josie. I, didn't, I wasn't doing this to Josie to challenge Josie. I want to learn from what she learned. Say, would you, would you point to me the, this writing you read about this? I want to know about this. They can't because there's nothing there. I saw a hand go up somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. I'm going to pull up that slide. Okay, so let's go back here. I do want to do one more thing, but then I skipped it in case we didn't have time. God has revealed himself, the water. And we believe when God speaks, it's pure truth, correct? We believe then that he inspired the writers to write it down. And what they wrote down was his inerrant word, the word of God. Those have deteriorated, been destroyed, whatever. And we now have copies of them. Of the Hebrew, hundreds. Of the Greek, thousands. Of the Latin, even twice as many. Copies of the originals. And I would suggest to you that, and we'll talk about it next week too, the copies, the process of which we are getting back to the original is so unbelievably um, thorough. And even some of the textual critics themselves are saying, you guys, we've done the job. We can quit doing this. We've done it. And others are geeks that say, no, no, we're never going to stop. Then we'll talk about translations. Is the translation you have in your hand an accurate translation of the copies of the original? But let, when we get here, I'm going to suggest right here, how much pollution has come in from when God spoke to you interpreted it? I would say the translation in your hand 
minimal pollution. I try not to do it too often in the pulpit. I'll do it in Bible studies more. We'll say, you know what, the NIV is just wrong here. I trust the New American Standard on this one. I'll seldom say, well, I know Greek, and so that's wrong. What I'll say is, I prefer the ESV on this translation, as opposed to communicate to you that you can't trust your English Bible, or to communicate to you that I'm some expert that you just listen to me and don't do your own study. Um, but so some, some, I suggest to you at this point, the copies, if what I'm reading is correct, 99.5 people, they're certain we've gotten back to just a matter of a couple hundred words we're still uncertain of. And I'll actually bring a list to you next week of the most important Bible passages that are uncertain. Ten of the most important Bible passages that are uncertain. And, and I'll ask you a question. Let's throw them all out. Does it ruin your faith? And you'll find, no, a couple of my favorite stories were just thrown out. But the faith has not changed one bit. And I would say to you, because in English we're blessed through capitalism, we have so many good translations to compare that I can say we have more certainty that our translations are more accurate than Timothy's translation that Paul said, your, your translation is the God-breathed word of God. Dick... It's the interpretation that there's this, I'm going to draw a line here with this four-inch hose of mud coming in because, because of a new thing. And you young people tell me this. How often do you, I'm not blaming you, I'm asking you. How often do you hear, well, that's my truth and you have your own truth? Do you hear that? See, our generation would say, well, that's your opinion. Here's my opinion. That's now changed to, well, this is my truth. And it's not your truth. And as soon as you took it from opinion to truth, guess what? It's not challengeable. See, truth's truth. So I can no longer challenge you. Or if it's an opinion, which is all that is, by the way, when you or your friends say, this is my truth, um, I'd rather you say, this is my conviction. And let me tell you why I have this conviction. But if we keep this idea, this is my truth, then we can make the Bible mean whatever we want it, Dick. Anything we want it to mean, we'll make it mean, and it's my truth, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, we're, we're in a, a sea of mud right now in that area. Yeah. Questions on that? What is your truth, by the way? That was a joke. Come on. Yeah. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and if we can have a relationship with them without being jerks and authoritarian and insulting, we can have a good conversation with them. So Elaine and I had a conversation with a young man Christmas Eve. Second service, the first service, we had 180 people in here, breaking the governor's rules like you wouldn't believe. The second service, we had 25 people. In second service, there was this tall, was he a redhead? This tall redhead young man sitting in the back. I bet he was 6'6", sitting in the back. Never seen him before. After it was all over, I walked out, and he walks up to me and said, thank you, I haven't been in church in years. It turns out he was out at Sand Harbor. His car broke down. He walked in because he was hitchhiking. No one would pick him up. And he walked into the church parking lot, and Neil was out there. And Neil invited him in. 
Neil also went back with him to help fix his car after services. But he was here talking to us saying, wow, I, he was very impressed with, with um, I'm not sure if he was impressed with my teaching or Elena's music, but nonetheless, <laughs> he was impressed. And, and, and we said, well, what, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm just traveling the country, and I stop and work for a few weeks somewhere and get money and then travel on. And this is my recollection. If I'm wrong, tell me, because Trish tells me I, I don't remember things well. And I said, well, you're blessed. He goes, yeah, the universe has been good to me. The universe has been good to me. And, and I forget his name. Do you remember his name? Spencer. She's excellent. See, her memory's better. I said, Spencer, no offense, but it wasn't the universe. It was Jesus. So, but that's what young people are saying today. How many of you heard that? You heard that? The universe. I go, what's the universe? The universe is a cold, impersonal bunch of rocks floating around space that we then assign personhood to that guides me, blesses me, but has, holds me to no accountability as opposed to a personal God who has said, I love you, I've come to redeem you, and I want you to live like it. So anyways, that's, I saw a hand back there. Elder. Sure, we all choose to believe. Okay, so 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 yeah. So let me ask you a question, Elder. You brought it up. Thank you for being on, uh, straightforward with us. But saying there's a God is a big claim. Well. Well, what is the universe then? Okay, but, but it has some power to direct you. Right. Okay, so you're, you're not saying the universe is an actual power or, or a, something that guides you. Okay, that, that's what these people are saying, I'm saying. They're calling the universe, they're basically replacing God with this impersonal thing called the universe. Kind of like when we were kids, the, 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 the zodiac signs. You know, that they're kind of replacing it to that. And, um, and, and I just like to ask, explain the universe to me. What, what do you mean? Um, but thank you for bringing that up. And thank you for your honesty. Yes. Right? Is your sister um, ever part of AA or NA? Yeah, so, right. And AA is started by Christian men, two Christian men. And so they didn't shove Jesus down people's throats. They talked about a higher power. And that, that was back in the 1920s. Over time, and some of you may know more about this than me if you're part of AA or NA. Over time, it's become pretty loose what your higher power can be. But once again, I asked them, who's your higher power? Can you tell me about it? He, she, you know, what, what do you know about that person? Is there somewhere you found out about him, a book? Did you make it up in your head? I just ask questions to not to try and prove them wrong, but to hopefully 
to set some seeds of doubt where the Spirit of God then will come later and say, yeah, what that guy said, you need to think about that. Um, and, and because you and I can't convince anybody. If we speak truth, we speak it with compassion and clarity, God will use it. But if we do that, they're just going to turn us off. Yeah. So, um, and my brother is a Christian, and he loves AA. He loves it. AA. It saved his life. So I'm not picking on AA. Last thing, anything? So your life was what? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's, um, he said, if you didn't hear, he, he always, though he didn't believe in a God, he always lived his life as there was, if there is one. And see, Elder, I would suggest to you um, a guy named Blaise Pascal. He was a, a Catholic philosopher, mathematician back in the 1600s. And he said, every human being has a God-shaped vacuum in his heart. A vacuum meaning it's pulling something in. And every human being has this God-shaped vacuum that is pulling in a desire to know this God. Obviously, there's something in us also called sin that says, you don't want to know him, so keep him out. So, so Elder, I, I just suggest to you, keep listening. Keep, keep listening, yeah. Five bucks. <laughs> C.S. Lewis in his book, Dear Christianity, mm-hmm. says a lot of the same thing. Yeah. About, it's, you know, the meaning in good or, or why would people do something good? Why would you say that? Why mm-hmm. would you do that? Why would you, if you didn't have a belief that there was something right. else? People naturally are drawn to certain things because there is a God. Yeah. So she's saying C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about the idea of good. People talk about good, but but... Where does good come from? Yeah. We, you know, we say, well, that's good, that's evil. Who, who defines that? It comes down to either there's something above us that defines it, or individually you define it, or culturally we define it. And in the end, those all break down, you know, logically. So we're jumping out of what we're doing here. So there's a couple classes I want to teach here. I want to teach a class on ethics. And, and we're going to have, I told you this in the first week, I think I told you that we're having... Um, um, Sean McDowell come in and do apologetic seminar. And he would do a segment on this that we're doing now. Um, and I'm going to ask him to do other things because we already went over this. So, th- so this is more about the process of how you got your Bible. It's a very human process. But God in his providence is overseeing this process to where the product in your hand, you can trust just as Paul told Timothy, is God-breathed even though there's some weird problems with it. Did Jesus say, I'm not going to Jerusalem, or not yet go? Did, did Paul say, like a young mother, or I was gentle with you, or like a nurse? So these are some variants that change meanings of a text, but they don't, they don't radically undermine your faith at all. Next week, I'll show you the two that... Three of them that you will say, I don't like this class anymore. I'll tell you what they are. 
the woman caught in adultery, the end of Mark, and 1 John 5, 7, and 8 about the Trinity. All three of those are three passages that textual criticism probably says don't belong in your Bible. So I'll leave you with that as a hanger to come back to next week. <laughs> Father, thank you for the opportunity here, Lord. And once again, Lord, if anything I said, Father, makes sense, just drill it into our hearts and minds if it's true. If it's not, erase it, Father, please. But um, I thank you that this group of people want to think about their faith and their, what, how they got their Bible. And so, so continue to exercise our minds, Lord, that you gave us. And we want to honor you with our, our minds and our thinking and challenge one another. So thank you for this great, great opportunity. In Christ's name we praise you. Amen.